Hi everyone, this is Holly Herndon. I'm Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to Interdependence. listening to this, you're listening to the free version. This podcast is completely ad-free and only possible through listener support. That sounds like a standard line, but it's true. It takes time and care to put this together, and without patrons, we won't be able to carve out the time to do this. So if you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it continue, please visit patreon.com interdependence and subscribe, where you'll get access to our most recent conversations, as well as an archive of full-length past episodes. Thank you for listening. Bring, bring, bring. Hi, Zion. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> it's creepy when we do it in unison. I right? know. That's actually never really happened before. I don't know why. <laughs> it's so nice to have you here today. Thank you for having me. Would you mind please um, introducing yourself for our sweet listeners? Yeah, my name is Zion Lights. I'm a science communicator based in the southwest of England. And I've done a lot of work over the years in kind of environmental advocacy, writing and activism. That's wonderful. Very succinct. Very succinct. <laughs> so we, we, we've recently, I mean, uh, I think we, we said this before, but we're, we don't consider ourselves experts in energy usage uh, whatsoever, but it's been a topic that's come up a fair bit for good reason um, <clears throat> recently. And so... I first encountered you actually um, through uh, the writer Lee Phillips, who I actually really look forward to having on the podcast um, in future. Um, And then through diving in, it seems that maybe, you know, the first time most people would have encountered you was in relation to um, Extinction Rebellion uh, quite a few years ago now. Um, Would you mind maybe uh, describing for people, you know, what that movement was, what your involvement was, and maybe, you know, maybe giving a bit of uh, of foreshadowing um, uh, on that period of your life? Sure. So Extinction Rebellion was founded here in Britain. It's a grassroots group um, that believes that climate change is the most important issue of our time and also believes that the best strategy for um, pushing for action on climate change to address climate change is through breaking the law and it's through... Um, civil disobedience, basically, as many movements have historically done. So it was actually around for a little while before I got involved. It was kind of launched, um, I think, in the autumn of 2018. And it wasn't, you know, huge right away. But in the later, the next year, in, in the spring, they had what they called the April Rebellion, where several sites around London were shut down. And I, I went along to one of those um kind of protests or rallies, whatever you want to call it, just to see, you know, what this group was up to. And I, I'd heard some kind of scientists speaking out in favor of what they were doing. So I thought, you know, this could be a really good thing to get involved with. And I threw myself into it and quickly met people on the ground there, um, including some of the co-founders, some of the main sort of central figures behind Extinction Rebellion, who asked me very quickly to join the team and to become a spokesperson because one of the co-founders had seen um, a TED talk I'd given. So I said yes, because I thought actually they've got this incredible um, 
space that they're occupying. I've been talking about climate change for a long time. They've finally put it sort of right there at the top of the agenda. And I felt that I could do good work for them. So I said yes. And it all sort of, um, yeah, just uh, developed from there. And so in terms of um, your relationship with Extinction Rebellion, is there a reason... I, I remember vividly, I forget the guy's name. Who's that news presenter in the UK who asks, he's kind of like very dour. <laughs> That's all of them. Is it Andrew Neil? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Andrew Neil. I, I remember I remember seeing that video where he was kind of uh, grilling you over some of the, the claims made by, by the group. I mean, I can only imagine that must have been quite, a, it seems like a very decentralized kind of movement in that sense. Would that be, would that be fair? Well, I mean... <laughs> It is and it isn't. So when so it was difficult for me because I, I did do a fair few media slots for Extinction Rebellion and I think that they've done great work and they helped to get the conversation, you know, right where it needs to be, focus on climate change, talking about what we need to do, climate emergency, you know, they came up with that term, um, net zero goals, all of that. Um, great, right, excellent. But then along the way, there were lots of things that happened um, like one of the co-founders you know, saying that billions of people are going to die by the end of the century. And there was a kind of internal struggle about that at the time, Mm -hmm. which was a bunch of us, including me, a lot of the scientists saying, we've really got to put out a statement and say, you know, we shouldn't have used that figure because it's not accurate and there's no evidence behind it, even if, you know, people feel it to be true. And then there was a whole other bunch of people saying, no, we need to stand by it. We've said it and it doesn't matter if it's not exactly true. It's going to happen and this actually went on for about six weeks and I, I was involved in all of the discussions around it and meetings and it went round in circles. And ultimately they decided to stick with it because it because of the person who had said it. So it was really difficult for me um, to be put on that spot because um, to be put on the spot like that because I, I didn't feel I could defend it. Yeah. And I was also there as a spokesperson who should be able to dis- defend it. And I kind of felt right away that, um, maybe I'd kind of done my bit for this movement and I, it wasn't helpful anymore. And that, that was the last time I did any kind of public speaking for them. That's a really interesting context. I can imagine the the struggle there, the personal struggle that you had with that there. Yeah, it's really interesting. <clears throat> I was listening to you on the podcast this morning um, talking about kind of shifting the Overton window. Um, and it appears, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it appears that you know, when you have activist goals, and as you say, extension rebellion, I wasn't, I wasn't as aware of, of quite how pivotal they may have been in pushing forward uh, the agenda, particularly in the UK. I mean, I was aware of it happening, but, but that's really cool. But you get this odd tension between, you know, making large claims which can help advance an activist message, um, and of course, science, which is often more complicated and, and debatable, right? Well, another way of putting it is also there's one <clears throat> there's one aspect to activism, which is getting the awareness out. And then there's another aspect, which is kind of building that future that you want to see. And you saw this kind of similar thing with Occupy, um, Occupy Wall Street in the, God, when was, was that? The, the aughts. Um, <clears throat> really great at getting the kind of concept of the 1% out there and getting this kind of idea of growing inequality out there, but then really difficult to kind of have a consensus on how to reach those goals. Yeah, what to do about it. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, so in terms of your in, in terms of your your leaving the organization, are you involved in it in any capacity, or or have you have you have you left it? I, I wonder what the rationale was um, beyond well, defending that one particular claim. It was. Um, I mean, there were several things really. You know, a lot of his questions were reasonable questions that I could see. You know, were things that were concerning people, and most of them were geared towards well, what are your solutions. 
you know, and I just sort of sat there and thought, I really want to say things and I can't because it wouldn't be representing the movement. And yeah. I actually think I actually said something like, I'm not here for solutions, which is a terrible thing to say. But, <laughs> um, but, I, what I re- but what I realized was that actually that's a, this is a good thing because it shifted from, um, so, so, so let's go back for a minute. Before Extinction Rebellion, before Fridays for the Future, I was talking about climate change for years. Um, years and years, I was doing public talks, you know, writing articles, and I found it very hard to get anyone to talk about it. And I found it very hard to get people to believe that it was real because I'd get a lot of people saying, no, I saw data that says it's not true. It's just the sun and all this sort of stuff. And I even wrote an article. I had a column in the Huffington Post at one point and I wrote an article which um, the title was something like, can we start using the C word yet? And I was thinking, of, you know, it was about climate change. Mm-hmm. So they burst on the scene and they made that shift happen. Extinction Rebellion, Fridays for Future, it's a massive worldwide movement. You know, Greta was very closely linked with Extinction Rebellion in the start. She went to the first kind of launch event um, before she was that well known. And that that was all incredible and really positive. And I'm so glad that they came along and did that. And it was why I was happy to get involved. But when I sat in that chair and was being asked very specific, about very specific solutions, very specific changes, what you know, what do you want? I realized the movement kind of hadn't kept up with that. The movement is still in this space and it still is in this space now where they're just saying, we want action, we want action, but they're not leading anyone toward any solutions. And I actually think that's almost slightly dangerous because, um, you know, it means that it's a free for all and people can do whatever they want. And I lo- what I liked about Extinction Bell in the beginning was that they'd say, follow the science. You know, that's something really yes. strong and powerful to get behind. But then even now, if you ask them, they'll say, no, we don't talk about that. We don't give you solutions. And Greta says that as well. And that's actually, she got her line of thinking from Extinction Rebellion. And it's become a very dominant way of thinking. And I don't think it's a, it's enough because actually, you look at most politicians around the world, you know, they might have good intentions and might care and want action on climate change, but they're not scientists. They have, they have to be more kind of bridges here where it's 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 you know, clear what the science is, it's clear what needs to happen. And then they kind of pushed in that direction, which is now what I've, I, you know, I've started doing. Yeah. And I mean, I wonder, uh, borrowing from that, like what does need to happen? <laughs> um, uh, uh, and that's mainly the kind of the main motivation for us wanting to talk to you is you've taken a very, um, a very kind of pro nuclear stance. And that's something that we're both like very, very interested in. So I wonder, I wonder how you came to that conclusion. Um, yeah. Well, um, first of all, in terms of what needs to happen, you know, we don't have to, we're lucky. We don't have to go away and crunch the numbers. That's all been done. So if you look at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, their reports, particularly the 1.5 warming report that came out in autumn t- uh, 2018, it's a very, I know it's very dense data, but if you, you know, it's it's got everything outlined in there that needs to happen. And it's got this whopping section by working group three on energy. And it basically, you know, it's not opinion, it's numbers. It's like, here's how much we use. Here's how we get off of the fossil fuels. Here's how we replace it. And it says, this was really eye-opening for me because when I looked at it, it said, yeah, we need lots of renewables. But I already knew that. I'd been telling everybody that for years and years, you know, all green advocates, um, all environmentalists are pro-renewables. Pro but what I didn't realize until I looked at that report was that it also says you need a huge amount of nuclear. And I got worried because it's not really happening anywhere. And that is because the same groups that say follow the science, kind of they like one bit, they like the renewables, and they don't like the other bit, and they ignore it. But there's there's no way to do it. The numbers can't be crunched in the way. 
um, unless we want to stay reliant on fossil fuels. So I realized actually this is a really important space to get into, quite a difficult space, you know, quite a controversial space, but someone has to do it um, because otherwise we will just make the same mistakes that we've been making for a long time. You know, I'm not, I don't even mean, you know, from the beginning of the industrial revolution when we started, you know, raising global greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, just in my lifetime, just in my lifetime, our emissions have um, globally increased so exponentially. And you think, well, actually, I was a kid learning about climate change. We have known about this for a long time now. And I worry that in another 30 years, we'll be making exactly the same mistakes and won't have made any headway because we're not actually pushing for the kind of uh, solutions that have a scientific consensus behind them. Hmm. Yeah, I wonder if you could walk us through a little bit what the state of nuclear is today, because I feel like a lot of people hear the word, you know, it has this weight to it. People think about <laughs> nuclear war. They think about Chernobyl. It it obviously has like a um, a, a weight to it that um, a perception that needs to change. But a lot of development has happened in that space. Um, in the meantime, can you tell us a little bit about kind of like the current state of nuclear? So the interesting thing is that some countries are building more nuclear. They've realized that they need to meet their climate targets, their net zero goals, and they don't have the stigma necessarily that other countries have. I found that across Europe, there is a lot of stigma. Yeah. And I mean, I think it really goes, uh, kind of goes to Germany, what happened in Germany. So after the Fukushima um, Daiichi power plant disaster, mm-hmm. um, Germany reacted very badly to that. But just to say something on, on Fukushima, you know, the um, there was a, an immense death toll because of the earthquake and the earthquake that triggered the tsunami. Actually, no one died because of the nuclear meltdown. Yeah. It was just that there was a lot of fear about it. And you know, anyone can go and go away and look at these facts somewhere like Our World in Data. That's a really good source with really solid data. You can go and look at the actual numbers. You know, but the kind of the media and the fear um, that came out of that, the very negative kind of um, narrative that was created put a lot of people off um, nuclear energy, even though actually what happened is um, their, their Daiichi power plant was hit by a tsunami and an earthquake and still no one was harmed. So actually, no. <laughs> it was kind of that's a great test, right? Like the worst case scenario, they even store waste on site at that power plant, didn't hurt a single person. There's been lots of studies done. There's lots of research. You, know, you don't have to take my word for it. So, so um but what happened is that Germany reacted really badly. And in the wake of that, um, they decided that they were going to phase out all of their nuclear power plants. And they've been doing this steadily year on year. And actually what's happened is their emissions have gone up. So they've put lots and lots of money into renewables. So they have been building renewables. But they've actually, you know, they don't, I mean, what happens when it's not sunny or, or windy? You, yeah. don't have, you don't have any generation. It's great that you can have high capacity on windy and sunny days, but you always need a backup. And so um, that's always traditionally, you know, historically been fossil fuels. And so as they phased out their nuclear power plants, they ended up burning, importing and burning more coal. And they actually have one of the dirtiest carbon footprints in Europe. Um, So, you know, that's so that, and and actually sadly, a lot of other, and it's funny because Germany has this kind of reputation as being this green place, you know, the green party's big there, but actually the consequence has been that lots of other countries have been following suit without actually looking at the data. And it's very easy, again, to just look up, go and have a look at what the carbon footprints look like across Europe. So let's look at the opposite example, which is France. So in the 70s, France decided to build lots of nuclear power stations. And actually, you know, they weren't really thinking about climate then. They were thinking about energy independence. They didn't want to have to import, you know, um, Russian gas or whatever that we're reliant on here in Britain. And so they built lots of their own own, um, power plants 
and very quickly kind of decarbonized. And now they get over 70% of their um, electricity from nuclear and they have one of the lowest footprints in, in Europe. So, you know, they did that a long time ago. It can be done. But even there, there's a lot of pressure and there are a lot of environmental groups. Um, Greenpeace is very active there, for example, who are still calling on these power plants to be shut down, which is what happened in Germany. And my worry is, and the reason why I've got in, kind of got in the ring, you know, is because actually what will happen is our emissions will continue to go up. Mm-hmm. And we really can't hold on to this ideology and based on fear. We've got to look at what the evidence is. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's still to answer your question, there are other people like Japan, who are building more reactors, and they're building very quickly in Japan. They've been building new reactors in just four years. So, you know, when there isn't the stigma attached like over here, they, they can be done very quickly at, you know, at, um, for very cheap. And it's funny because a lot of people would think that Japan will be really anti-based what, what happened there, but actually, obviously, they've lived through it and they do understand that, yes, they had a fear response and that reactor was shut down, but, you know, it didn't really harm anyone. So they're kind of actually developing and building more now. I find this really fascinating, especially in Germany as a kind of case study, because we are well, obviously we're based there, but also it, it as a country, like you said, likes to present itself as a kind of rational pro-science society. And, you know, it being a democracy as well, of course, the leaders have to listen to their public and the public is largely against um, nuclear, which I find very strange in, uh, in context to what you're describing here about having to ramp up coal production and also this kind of reliance on this new pipeline um, with um, with Russia, which obviously is also very controversial. So I wonder, you know, in a, in a democracy where the public public opinion really matters, of course, how do you kind of change that perception um, in a place like Germany that has this history, that has this you know, it, 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 it was largely triggered by Fukushima that kind of ramped up the um, ramped up the process. But there was already this kind of historical um, baggage there from Chernobyl and from. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. How do you kind of change that perception on a wider public scale? And that I mean, that appears to be a really important part of the, the project. My first proposal will be to uh, comfort the German public that they're in no danger of a tsunami hitting them. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Hamburg. I don't know. <laughs> well, um, here's what I found really interesting. So I've been in the environmental movement for a really long time. About 15 years ago, I was in um, a small group called Camp for Climate Action, very similar to Extinction Rebellion in many ways, um, kind of a grassroots group, um, breaking the law, doing things um, to bring attention to climate change. And I was in my early 20s, as quite young, and we were doing exactly the same stuff then, but I think we were just, you know, we were too early. That movement did not catch up, catch on. But ultimately, we we were protesting, you know, coal. We were protesting tar sands. We were doing all of that work then, realizing, you know, this isn't good enough. We can't have this. It's not working. And I was surrounded at that time, you know, by all these groups um, Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, you know, you tend to sort of end up in the same communities, a lot of crossover between these groups. And a lot of them were much older than me. And they were more kind of, yeah, people who uh, remembered the Cold War or people who um, were long-term C&D campaigners, which is, you know, more about kind of nuclear weapons. And so 
when you're surrounded by those people, you sort of start to absorb the thinking. I I guess it's kind of like tribal thinking. And I was quite young and I didn't question it. And I heard awful things about Fukushima and Chernobyl and, you know, really awful things. And I thought, oh my goodness, nuclear is really terrible. And it was, you know, it would be years, years before I actually decided to question that and start looking into it myself. It would be years. And actually, um, that doesn't happen for most people. So what I've noticed now since I kind of shifted and I shifted over time, you know, it didn't happen overnight. It was over a period of time, kind of talking to different people, talking to engineers, um, you know, talking to scientists, looking at data, studying, you know, I went back to university and did a master in science communication and kind of learning myself. Um, and as I, as I changed my mind, I started sort of telling people in these groups, right. It was a green party member, um, I was in, I was in lots of different groups and I'd sort of start telling them and I found that actually people didn't want to hear it. There was, you know, there's a real fear response and it's very much like, um, you know, it's not that different than, um, with, with anti-vaccinators who have argued with before, um, where they really like, uh, double down and it's like your, um, even just by bringing, like trying to have a discussion about it, it's like, you're really hurting them. It's like, you're hurting their identity. And I realized, wow, you know, that's not me. I can't really be in this space anymore. So I kind of stepped away from a lot of these groups. And what I realized since then is actually when I talk to people who aren't from that generation of what I call traditional environmentalists, like old school environmentalists, like the young people, they just don't have the same fears and hangups. And if anything, their biggest fear, their biggest fear is climate change. And it's completely at odds with what the older generation are still pushing, you know, saying, you know, oh, we need to use less energy. We need to have renewables. We need to, you know, get rid of all these big industries or whatever. Um, And then you've got young people saying, well, actually, I kind of want my tech. I kind of want my phone to work. You know, I kind of want energy. I kind of appreciate energy. Um, But how do we do it in a sustainable way? And they're also very good at um, going away and just finding out for themselves. I find that they're very switched on kind of millennial gen z gen z generation are very good at just going going and have a look at anything you've said and looking at the data themselves um they don't fall for the same kind of myths and fear-mongering that previous generations have and i've even tested this i did a series of 12 university talks um this year before the students broke up for the summer and each each week i speak at a different university and across the board i found the same thing just I'd do a little presentation. It would just be, you know, here's the data, here's the information. They would just take it at face value. Okay, they'd say, right, the IPCC says that. Okay, that's good enough for me. That We know that's really good, solid data. You've shown me a graph, you know. Um, and actually all the questions at the end would be, well, what do we do? How do we fix this? You know, there was no kind of, what about waste? What about radiation? Which if you go into the traditional groups, that's all you'll hear about. They can just argue that stuff like till the cows come home. And there's a real generational divide there. So I think it's really key to reach those younger people who ultimately are the ones that are going to be, you know, heaviest, heaviest um, impacted by what we choose to or choose not to do about climate change. Yeah, but that that actually scans with our experience in other areas that we uh, care about, to be honest, that it, 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 it raises kind of an interesting dynamic, right? That we often butt into, this is in other areas, but it's like, the tension you were talking about earlier of people not wanting to discuss something or it feeling like a personal affront. Um, it feels like we're at, we are at a little bit of a precipice that might take a decade or two, um, where feeling good about oneself, uh, for maybe older people is tied to a 20th century narrative that is really difficult to kind of unsettle, right? Like you mentioned, Chernobyl, for example, right? Um, I don't actually know if this is strictly true, so I won't say it definitively, but I've also heard and read things that suggest that actually the the human cost of Chernobyl was 
greatly exaggerated in in the context of a disaster of any scale like that. Um, maybe you have more to say about that. Um, but of course, we have the films and we have the television series. Um, and also this kind of like ambient sense within 20th century kind of counterculture of, you know, being skeptical of such things and, you know, wanting to, you know, wanting to get back to the earth, this other kind of uh, quote unquote, like uh, uh, fetishization of what, what may or may not be natural, um, as if uranium doesn't come from the earth's core. Um, but yeah, it, but we, we've definitely had that experience too, where you'll, you'll encounter people who are maybe a bit younger and don't have that kind of identity-based baggage. They don't associate or they haven't grown up necessarily around those kind of activist communities. And it's often a source of great optimism. Um, but I wonder, you know, in terms of the, uh, uh, actually, do you have anything to say about that before I, before I move well, uh, well, first of all, Chernobyl, you know, that's a, an exceptional example because they were using a reactor that we don't use anymore. It's called an RMBK reactor. Um, secondly, the Soviet Union was not very good at notifying people of what had happened. So if they had been evacuated, they wouldn't have been exposed to the radiation for weeks, which did make people sick. But actually, they were, you know, it's quite e easy to treat radiation poisoning and they were treated and it w just wasn't a very significant um, death toll. That's not to say that, you know, it's okay that people died, but all right. energy production results in death, right? All to some degree, like we'd just be lying to ourselves if we pretended that that, that wasn't true. I mean, air pollution from fossil fuels alone kills over 8 million people a year. That's, that's a conservative figure from the latest kind of research. So we have to look comparatively. I was just going to say a, a thousand in Germany alone, which I think is really interesting <laughs> given their kind of like move drive to, to continue. Exactly. So really it's about, it's about comparative risk, isn't it? And it's a very similar thing you get with everything. You know, you get it again, I go back to anti-vaxxers because I think they're really similar parallels to draw here. And that's kind of what I started out doing when I got into science communication, because I wrote a book and had a chapter on vaccines in there. And it was just explaining the science about it, you know, about them and, you know, why they're needed and how they work. And I had such a backlash from these kind of green parents who said, why are you promoting, you know, are you vaccines? Are you working for big pharma? Who's got to you and all this stuff? And, um, and I, and again, it's this idea that, well, the vaccine's not natural and polio is right. And it's just mm -hmm. such a privileged, it's such a privileged, privileged idea. But you can say the same thing with a COVID vaccine, right? People would say, well, you know, it, it's not, you know, again, it's not natural. What's it doing to your body? And you kind of go, well, is it natural for a bat, you know, something that came from a bat to like infiltrate your body and make you sick? You know, what, what does it mean to say natural? I mean, nuclear fusion is natural, you know, it, it's a natural process. I mean, how do you think the sun works? Um, yeah. So there's a lot, but there's, there's a lot. There's a lot in that and it's very, I think, you know, you're right when you say people made films about it and it got into popular culture and you think something, things like The Simpsons, yeah. it's a long running joke. And so when I believed all these bad things about nuclear, watching The Simpsons just reinforced that. Yeah. Oh, of course it's bad. Of course the biggest, baddest person in The Simpsons is the person that runs the nuclear power plant. <laughs> of course they don't manage the waste properly or look at the waste, it's all acidic and gloopy and dangerous because actually, you know, it's, it's solid, small kind of, um, metal rods that are, uh, you know, they can't leak is, yeah. is what I'm trying to say. And it <laughs> takes a lot to unpick that once it kind of enters popular culture. And I think partly that's just happened because it's a good narrative. You know, it's a, a good scary narrative about a, a technology and it's, that's kind of taken off, but we've really got to move beyond it now because the scariest narrative now is climate change and we've got to do something about it. And we've got to use all the tools in the kit of all the solutions that we have to hand whatever science tells us we need to do yeah that makes sense you actually preempted because this morning when i was preparing for this i thought 
people need pro nuclear people need, really need to lean into Homer Simpson because no matter how incompetent he was, it never actually melted down. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point, actually. <laughs> I mean, beyond the the three eyed fish and, and so on, but, but Homer Homer did his best basically to create like a, a global catastrophe and never quite never quite achieved it because of the, because clearly the, the, they were more resilient than we expect. Um, I. Uh, uh, I, I have a question because I think most people, again, I don't know very much about this, but from reading a little bit of what you've written um, and, and a few others, you know, a common kind of, uh, a common uh, comeback towards this is being like, well, why, why would we need uh, nuclear when there are, you know, quote unquote renewables? Um, is there, is there an easy way to kind of convince someone who, because again, when you talk about the sun or the wind um, or hydro, you know, this again carries with it if we inherit this kind of 20th century bias and this kind of odd, again, quote unquote, natural um, uh, interpretation of, of things. They sound so nice, you know, like it, solar panels and, uh, you know, wind, like breezy, being in like a, a breezy locale uh, by the ocean sounds, sounds uh, uh, blissful as opposed to concrete modernist uh, 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 nuclear power plants. Do you, have a, do you have an easy or a, a short way maybe to convince people that renewals are not sufficient? Yeah. So here's the thing. 15 years ago, when I was a big climate change um, activist, I was completely supporting the idea of 100% renewables. And I would, you know, got my university to switch to a renewable energy provider. And, you know, we, we educated people on campus about it and all kinds of stuff when I was at university. And what we would say was, people w- would ask, they'd say, you know, well, is it enough to power England? Is it enough to power Britain? And I would, we would be honest about it. We, you know, I would be honest about it. And I would say, well, actually, um, it's not. It's not, right? Because the battery storage isn't good enough. So we can store a little bit of sun or wind, um, uh, solar wind power. But when it, when it, you know, if it's not sunny for a couple of days or it's not windy for a couple of days, then... Um, we have to rely on fossil fuels, right? That that was what I used to say 15 years ago. And what I would say to people is, don't worry, the battery storage is right around the corner. And now, 15 years later, I'm still hearing people say that. Yeah. And I've just got to the point where I'm saying, hang on a minute, we don't have 15 more years to waste hoping for a technology that has, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist, right? So you only need to look at the case study of Germany to see that it doesn't exist. They've put billions into renewables. It's not to say that they shouldn't, build them out because we should we should use everything that we can but to just invest in that is and shut everything else down is is dangerous frankly and the other thing i would say is that you know you're right there is this perception of like oh it's from the wind or it's from you know water or sun it's so beautiful you know it's a technology renewable renewable energy is technology like anything else i've heard had people i've had someone just recently actually on twitter saying um, oh, you know, well, what about the, the envi- you know, nuclear's not clean, clean. What about the environmental cost? It uses mining for uranium. And I said, but where do you, how do you think we get the resources to make um, wind turbines and solar panels? I mean, solar requires mining for lithium, right? Like all of these things have a significant impact on the environment. There's no, there's no two ways about that. So, you know, first of all, we don't, we don't have time to, to waste and to wait to turn more corners for a technology that hasn't yet presented itself to us. Secondly, you know, hydro, you know, hydro's got this amazing image um, as well of being this beautiful 
you know, clean, it's from nature, renewable type energy. But if, if you look at the dam disasters and sheer number of hydropower dam disasters, they're pretty significant. And the deaths from them actually add up to more than from nuclear. You know, that's really mm-hmm. worth looking at, looking at that data because people just don't realize it, but they don't have the same fear of it. Um, and, and I'm still not saying that we shouldn't use it. I think we should use everything we can in everywhere we can. But the thing with hydropower is you can only use that in certain locations anyway. And somewhere like Britain just isn't suited for, to be suited for it. So, um, you know, you really got to use whatever, whatever you've got to hand. The good thing about nuclear is you can do it anyway. You know, and that's actually the good thing about coal as well, right? You can use that anywhere, but we need to be getting off of the coal. So, I mean, is there any is there an easy answer? You know, I've said to people, battery storage, the battery storage isn't there. I've almost always get the same response back. Oh, it's on its way. You know, very few people would say, yes, it is there. You know, it does does exist because it, it, it just isn't true. It's very easy to back check that and see that, no, it's not. But they will say, what, what I've heard environmentalists say, traditional environmentalists say is, oh, well, we just need to use less energy. And I think that's, you know, maybe we're going to get onto that later, but I think that's actually a very dangerous thing to say. We're going to get onto that big time. I think we can get into it now, actually. I think it's really interesting. One reason why I think a lot of people are attracted to this kind of like renewables and then kind of reduction is I think it it includes this aspect of personal responsibility, which means like, you know, reduce your, your use of energy. That's, that's what it means to be a good person, etc. So I wonder what the, what, what the kind of tension is or what the role is of personal responsibility versus kind of larger corporate or political responsibility. And especially because, you know, these technologies are very expensive to develop. And a lot of that development happens through government subsidies and kind of where the political will and weight is being thrown behind kind of what technology. So I wonder from your from your perspective, what do you think that the role is or the tension is between personal responsibility and kind of larger political responsibility? It's interesting to me that environmentalism specifically has become so individual orientated. And I say that as someone who's done it herself, right? I wrote an entire book on how to lower your carbon footprint. And I live with quite a low carbon footprint. You know, I don't fly, I don't drive. Um, I never learned to drive for environmental reasons. So I've done that for a long time. I wrote an entire book on it, which was kind of research-based, you know, evidence-based, right? How do you actually do it? How do you raise children and keep a low carbon footprint? Because I wanted to do it. But what I realized over time is it really just comes back to math, like really basic math, which is that even if we all did that, even if we all managed to significantly reduce our personal emissions, it's just such a tiny dent on the amount that we use. Like people just don't realize how energy rich we are. And I'm not just talking about, you know, you can come home and you can switch the light on at any time and you can charge your laptop. I'm talking about if you get sick, the hospital is working 24 seven. If you want a COVID vaccine, the hospital has them stored at a specific temperature and you can get your COVID vaccine. You know, you look at other countries where they're energy poor and they don't have those benefits, right? They don't have those privileges. And actually it's very hard to then get them things that they need. And it's, they don't have access to, you know, it's not just about energy. It's about what that brings, which is the infrastructure, the hospital care, you know, the medical care, um, access to education, access to vaccines, all kinds of things are wrapped up in that. And we are so used to having it that we can just sort of pretend that, oh, well, you know, we all just live with a bit less. That's going to make a difference. And I still, you know, I still support anybody making those decisions. I still live with a fairly low carbon footprint myself, below average, I would say. Um, But we just have to be realistic that when you add up the numbers, 
we could all do that and it's not going to really change um, yeah. <laughs> the amount of energy we use because we need things like hospitals to run 24-7. They have vital equipment in them. And I, ha- you know, I had someone the other day say to me, oh, well, you know, he, he was kind of saying, well, just because you want to, he was saying we should use less energy. And I said, you know, it's really important that we don't have blackouts, that we we shouldn't be risking that just so we can just have renewables. And then when they run out, we don't have any, which is what he was saying. And I was kind of saying, well, you know, fridges won't work. And he said, well, not everybody wants to watch their TV in the middle of the night. And it was just such a typically kind of closed minded view about this, which is that it's not about watching your TV in the middle of the night. I mean, I don't even have a TV. It's it's about if people on hospital, on vital life saving equipment in hospital being able to stay alive, right? It's about um, it not being dark in the middle of the night. If you need to turn the light on, if you hear a bump downstairs, you need to go downstairs. You're not in pitch blackness. And I really, I really understand this in a way that I've found a lot of traditional environmentalists don't, you know, and it's them that's kind of pushing this idea of use less and do less personally. And it's because my family migrated here um, to Britain from a little village in the Punjab in India in the northern region of India. And I've been there, right? And I've seen, and it wasn't, when I went to India, it wasn't a, um, you know, it wasn't like a nice holiday staying in a resort like other people have. I went into the sticks, into these rural areas where my parents come from, and they have no electricity. They're so energy poor. And you think, well, actually, you know, um, my parents have sent money over. They've tried to help them. It's not about money. Like poverty isn't just about money, right? It's about access to things that they need and they don't have that access because they're energy poor and they're absolutely crying out for things like vaccines and clean energy that the rest of us are are taking for granted so i think it's such a dangerous thing to to present this view where oh we can all just live really simply you know what those people do live simply and they don't want to they don't want to live like that they want what we have and i'm not even just saying they just want the lights to work they want laptops and phones and we, how can we possibly sit here and say, no, you don't get to have those when us having them is what caused climate change, right? Yeah. Our industrial revolution, our, our lovely infrastructure that gave us a high quality of life, that gave us access to all of these things, it, it drove the, the thing that is going to impact them the most. It's just so, so wrong. And I know it's a bit nuanced and it's hard to get your head around, but we have to have these conversations because they're not being held in this space. In my experience, in fact, you get shut down when you start talking about yeah. them. Hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's it's it's funny to draw a line between there is kind of a purity politics of personal responsibility, right? And from what you're describing, you know, your decision to have a low carbon footprint um, appears in many ways to be useful beyond the what you said that you know if everyone were to do it, it wouldn't make that much of a difference. But it does it does lend credibility to you know the the levity of the situation, right? Of saying I want to uh, to outwardly signal that I really care about this stuff because actually all of us should care about this stuff, and hopefully through that that can stimulate some some political conversation or uh, and, and and fundamental change ultimately. But but there is also a great selfishness to those conversations. I mean, I um, I have not visited the Punjab. I grew up in in the Middle East. Um, I've been around poverty, um, uh, developing world poverty. Um, and there's also a great there's there's a kind of great selfishness that it's also up to us, right? That that people in the West who have benefited greatly from these things. Um, you know, ought to have a lever somewhere where we get to determine <laughs> whether you know uh, uh, the, the rising kind of the rising middle class in Lagos uh, uh, gets to enjoy all the advantages that, that we got to enjoy. Um, I wonder, you know, th- there's a history to this. Would you would you qualify that general sentiment as a degrowtherism? Um, 
I'm leading a little bit, but I, I quite, I'd like to find a bit of a definition for, de- for degrowthism because I, I wanted to have a few uh, episodes on that particular topic. Would, would you say that that term maybe encapsulates that general sentiment and all of the complications uh, attached to it? I think it does, but I have heard different schools of thought for degrowth um, and some are more appealing than others. But yes, overall, that is the idea. And of course, that only applies to the nice, wealthy, developed privileged countries um, and cannot cannot apply to the countries that need to develop right and actually now we're telling them well we don't want you to you know we're going to send some solar panels over to africa because we don't want you to burn coal anymore and you kind of look at it and just think but that's not what we had in order for us to develop and have everything we have we burned a lot of fossil fuels we did not have a little bit of intermittent energy we had everything we had a lot and yep. I don't think we can deny other nations that. And I get it. I get it. We need to do something about climate change. It's 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 not easy. You know, I've seen I've seen in the Punjab where they're just you know they're burning like the most basic fuel like wood to cook on. You know, it's it's terrible. It's terrible. Um, you know, hard labor uh, make makes you cough. It's the air pollution's terrible there, um, and leads to a lot of deaths. And you just think, well, actually, I always said this in Extinction Rebellion, which was you know, we talk about these apocalyptic scenarios that the West will face um, because of climate change. Well, there's already billions of people who live in those apocalyptic scenarios because yep. they live in poverty. Yep. And they're the ones that are going to suffer the most because they don't have the buffers and the protection that we have. And many of them live in climates, you know, like in India or Africa, where it's already, you know, very hot and it's getting hotter. And here we're, we're so much better protected in a way. And I think this is, this is where I really kind of step away from that old school environmentalism, which doesn't really include people in it. And that's why they advocate for degrowth is because people are like separate. In fact, people are like, people are the problem. People cause this. There's even an element I would say of, well, people should suffer because we caused this. Mm. this I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I think actually social justice issues have to be a part of environmentalism and they haven't ever been, and that has to change. Yeah, totally. This kind of like Malthusian subtext that we're we're all kind of tainted somehow. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the more the more of us. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And that we're unnatural as a species. Yeah, and that we're unnatural. We're some kind of like you know <laughs> human beings are the virus, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and you know, there's a lot of Malthusianism around, and even some of our kind of old school popular environmentalists do say things along those lines and it's become very predominant in environmental ideology and it shouldn't be there it's dangerous it's horrible i I have an i have another question i wonder how this ties to and i obviously want to be sympathetic here because we're talking about someone who's quite young um but you mentioned greta thunberg earlier um and i recall that there was kind of like that famous quote where she was was she at the un or something or davos or something it it was one of these like big scary places or whatever um, and she was talking about you know it was the how dare you speech with the you know mm-hmm. you and your fairy tales of eternal economic growth mm-hmm. um, and i found that I, again i i'm not overly fluent with her position on this and i'm sure you you have a lot more to say about it um but at the time i found that to be it was a really interesting cultural moment for exactly that reason where my first response was what is wrong with economic growth um in in some like pretty much from that angle of like not being a degrowther of looking at the rest of the world and thinking as you mentioned rightly mentioned like you know a lot of the developing world you know 
arguably one of the causes that they ha- are in the developing world is these are also people who are subject to natural disasters that are being accelerated by our economic growth, right? And that need some aspects of industrialization and you know energy security. Um, we they need those people need that stuff in order to be able to be resilient to what is coming too, right? So this kind of there's kind of mm-hmm. in my mind it seems like there's no there's no path other than economic growth or there's a kind of a a, a, a delusion as I, as I said earlier that that we hold the the strings to that you know that that anybody as you say that the community in in Nigeria or in Senegal or in the Punjab as, as you mentioned like is going to is going to you know forego uh, clear uh, clear steps that they and their families and their communities might need in order to uh, better their quality of life um, because you know a Swedish teenager um, makes a, a grand a grand statement in 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 the West um, would you say would you say would she qualify to you as a degrowther or is it or is it far more complicated than that well I don't know what her I don't know what her views are exactly but what I would say is that a lot of what I've seen her say is quite vague. So she'll say things like, listen to the scientists, you know. Um, well, that's quite vague, isn't it? What, what specifically are you referring to? At the same time, she has said things against nuclear. She has promoted renewables. So she's not kind of going with what the scientific consensus is or what's in the IPCC. Um, and I get it. You know, her thing has always been, you know, I'm a kid. Don't listen to me. I just want you to listen to the scientists. But what are scientists saying about economic growth? I mean, from what I've seen, it is needed in developing countries. Yeah. And there's no two ways about that. I mean, it's, it provides a strong moral case for us to get our emissions down. But can we do that without growth? I mean, even, you know, creating um, large scale renewable tech and the grids to cope with it. That's growth, right? That requires growth. It requires lots of money and subsidies and mining and workers. Um, so I don't, really, you know, I think it's just one of those things that gets parroted around, similar to the, you know, the individual pr- footprint thing. Are you doing your bit? It gets parroted around and it's not really a solution. And actually, let's just be honest for a minute. We've been saying the same stuff for decades. Like I was saying this stuff two decades ago. We have to, at some point, just take a step back and go, this isn't working. This isn't changing anything. This isn't right. We need to look at what the actual solutions are based on evidence and make sure that they're implemented so that in 20 years, we're not making the same arguments and in the same situation. Um, you know, and she, I think she's done incredible things and she's really, you know, I like her and, and she's, she's really feisty and she's really brought, um, you know, lots of attention to this important issue but again the narrative's got to move on now like we've we've done that she shouted at people they've heard um and now we need to say right well what do they actually need to do and the problem is that there's no one really holding up a lens to what these world governments are doing right it's just environmentalists who have this kind of let's be honest quite wishy-washy approach which is what i used to have just a kind of wishy-washy oh well you know in in a few years we might have the tech that we need for renewables oh well you know if we all just live with a bit less it might be fine well no actually we look at the numbers they just don't add up like we've got to be really honest about this what will it take what do we need to do and for goodness sake get behind the solutions because it's not going to change i can pretty much guarantee we'll be having the same discussion in 15 years that we're having now because the tactics and the conversation hasn't changed. I think she's kind of like a perfect encapsulation of the state of public discourse at the moment. Like she creates a really compelling avatar that we can kind of project 
um, emotions about this issue um, on. And she can give us kind of like sound bites that are very kind of like social media ready. But when we kind of get into the the really complicated um, aspects of the conversation, the parts that are are less black and white, the, the solutions and all of the problems that come up with that, that's where the kind of rubber hits the road, as you're mentioning. And that's really kind of an issue for the state of public discourse because everything's kind of the soundbite or the tweet or the kind of like shareable moment. Yeah. And actually... Yeah. And actually, you know, most issues are far more nuanced than that, aren't they? And let's be honest, fossil fuels aren't all bad, right? Fossil fuels are bad because they are polluting and, you know, millions of people die from the air pollution um, and lots of people die in the process of extracting them and people get kicked off the land because it's needed for pipelines and all of those things are bad. And now it's driving catastrophic climate change. All of those things are bad, but at the same time, Fossil fuels have given us a high quality of life that we would not have developed otherwise. And I am grateful that I have that because it means that my kids, you know, have access to vaccines and medication and education. It means that they're not likely to die in infanthood. You know, I've seen what it's like in India. I've seen, you know, you get bitten by a snake there. You're going to have a horrific death, horrific. You know what? It's not that anti-venom doesn't exist. It does exist, but it will take you four hours to get to a hospital if you're lucky and then you'll be lucky if they have the right venom in stock. You know, you'll be lucky if you'll be lucky if you can get transport to get there because there are no roads. So we've got, I think we've got to just accept the nuances here that they're good and bad. They've given us good things, and we, you know, we should be grateful for that. You can't just say, "Oh, you were just looking at money when you did all of this." No, we've done incredible things, right? We've done incredible things. We've provided education for people. We've provided healthcare for people. These are things that so much of the world still lacks access to. These are incredible things. More people are lifted out of poverty because of this. But of course, we've left a whole chunk of people behind for for various different reasons, and we simply cannot now tell, say, you know, say to them that, "Oh, well, you know, you're just stuck there." And, and, and it's it's just really so, um, I just think it's really embarrassing when people say, well, you know, they've got this simpler, um, good quality of life. No, they don't. Yeah. No, they don't. <clears throat> you know, I've got a cousin, I've got a cousin in the Punjab who needs 24 hour care from his mom. His dad died in a car accident. Um, car accident's very common over there. Again, like, you know, the healthcare is not necessarily there if you get hurt. And he, my cousin's about my age and when he was born, he had some fits. And, you know, over here, it's not, it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon for yeah. a baby to have fits. But they couldn't get him access. They couldn't get the medication that they needed to stop the fits. So my parents paid. They sent money over. They got a doctor to come out to this village, diagnose him. Okay, he has mild epilepsy. He just needs medication. But they could not get regular access to the medication. The, the infrastructure isn't there. It doesn't exist. So money, throwing money at it didn't solve anything. And now he's just completely crippled, sits in a chair all day, has to have everything done for him. He has no quality of life, frankly. Um, and it's just because he didn't get access to something that I could get just like that. You know, if I rang the doctor today and I said my daughter just had a fit, she would be treated right away. I wouldn't even have to pay for it because we have the NHS. You know, I mean, I pay in taxes, but, you know, um, it, it's that quick and simple. And that, you know... It's just so privileged. It's so embarrassing to, to make out like, well, they live so so happily and look at them in their communities. Don't, aren't they great living this simple lifestyle? No, they're not. They're afraid of wild dogs because the dogs have rabies. They're afraid of snakes because snakes bite you when you live near the jungle. 
they're, they're afraid of getting an infection and not being able to get antibiotics. These are the things we take for granted. And that's got, that's got to change. I think the environmental movement has got to catch up with reality and stop being so privileged and narrow-minded. And I think partly the reason that that has happened is because it tends to be these people from quite, you know, privileged middle-class backgrounds. Yeah, Pointing mm. the finger. And it's like, well, <laughs> actually, I don't think you get to speak for the rest of the world. You know, let's, uh, let's amplify some other voices, which is what I'm trying to do, right? Which is what I'm trying to do while recognizing that I have a lot more privilege than my relatives in India, just kind of at least speaking out for them. They, they do not need a couple of solar panels on their roofs that need replacing in 30, 40 years. They need clean, cheap energy at scale so that they can have the quality of life that we've had. What 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 does that leave us except for nuclear? You know, it's not like I went, yeah, nuclear, I'm gonna advocate for that. It's great. If it was spinach, if there was a if there was a huge you know, scientific consensus behind spinach, spinach is the great source we need to go behind. I'd be advocating for that. You know, I don't really care what it is. Um, but but we just have to be realistic about what it is and make sure that, that that's what we're pushing for. And there's, you know, more and more people are starting to do it. As I say, the younger people seem to be waking up to it, but we're, there's a lot, there's still a lot of misinformation um, and kind of ingrained ideology, ideology to contend with, not not just in with environmentalists, you know, but with politicians who are still of that kind of generation and still listening to these kind of NGOs who are just very, very successful at demonizing nuclear energy. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, in my mind, I, I completely agree with you. I think it's a very uncomplicated moral argument and fetishizing fetishizing others' poverty, um, most likely like lubricated by the fact that you've never been there, um, uh, is, 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 is a horribly selfish um, act. And, and, and I think, again, speaks to like some of the difficulty in pushing these conversations forward, right, is that that kind of... That kind of myopic, like looking at yourself, looking after your own patch, like growing your vegetables in your in your uh, in your front yard or whatever, it's a lifestyle industry now too, right? Um, and we saw this a little bit in Germany around some of the COVID uh, uh, anti-vaxxer stuff. You know, we were sitting sitting at home, and you know, the amount of people who uh, you would see traditionally associating with the Greens kind of a hippie granola. And of course, I don't have really much like a distaste for these things like uh, inherently, but the amount of people from that, from from those kind of communities and that kind of lifestyle who then joined in large marches with some very, very dodgy people, let's be frank, um, uh, spreading this kind of message of, you know, not wanting not wanting for pollutants to enter their bloodstream, et cetera, et cetera. Completely, again, myopic to, to, to the reality that, you know, there's there's a significant part of the developing world that's completely unprotected from um, uh, uh, from from this disease. Um, it's a but but that lifestyle industry again, it feels like this kind of very entrenched 20th century thing that I'm sure has some super interesting uh, backstory to it. That I'm sure was probably quite reasonable uh, at its genesis, but that needs to change. <laughs> well, I also just to piggyback on that a little bit, I wonder if it's kind of like okay, if you've spent decades long talking about needing to reduce energy usage and trying to have this more kind of monastic lifestyle. It's almost this kind of slap in the face for someone to be like, oh no, there's this energy that actually you could have it kind of infinite energy and it has like, you know, lower kind of like um, ecolo- ecological kind of damage. It almost feels like that's like scary for people who have had to or have been advocating for reduction for so long that that this kind of um, idea of abundance might even bleed into into looser attitudes towards the environment 
at large, like, okay, if we, if we feel like we've solved this issue, then, then that won't kind of um, make people wake up to the way that we're treating the oceans and the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I wonder how much of that has to do with this kind of like, you know, well, I had to go through this. <laughs> yeah. Like in a personal, yeah. a personal, yeah. a personal kind of like a journey as opposed to like a rational conclusion. Yeah, um, it's interesting because people have said that to me, even people who aren't necessarily anti-nuclear, they've just sort of gone, okay, but maybe it's a solution, but that's not the way we need to live. You know, it's everybody's unhappy and there's mental health issues. And, and, you know, it's true. And it's true, right? We've got a kind of epidemic of mental health issues. We have got lots of problems. But I would just sort of say to them, well, you think people living in poverty don't have those problems? You know, come on, there's problems and there's problems. <laughs> like, um, no. we've just got to be really really realistic about it and it's just it is just so privileged it's just such a privileged argument even just saying live with less let's be honest that's privileged because who can afford the hybrid car who can afford the solar panels you know who can afford all of these things that make it easier for you to have a low carbon footprint i'm aware of that as someone who does a lot of those things um it's you know it's often the more expensive more difficult more time consuming way to live you know who can afford a bit of land to grow food on and actually who's really growing enough food to feed themselves all the time like nobody's managing that right I've, I've woofed on a lot of these farms I've been down and spent time and actually helped you know like at my local kind of veg farm where I get my get my veg box from every week and it is hard labor they're doing it because they love it um and they still have a lot of challenges where crops won't come in or you know they have to import food from somewhere else because the crop failed or whatever and that's them doing it you know really well as organically as possible and they would they would be the first to admit well you know this isn't enough to just feed people 24/7 it's just yeah. not you know that's why we have supermarkets yeah. and lots of people don't like supermarkets i get that you know there's lots of reasons i don't you know what i liken this to though i liken it to um brexit if i'm allowed to go there Please. so with brexit you get a lot of these so often people on the left people like me and they'll say um no we hate brexit we should have remained we, yes the eu needed some reform but we shouldn't have just quit and i think well why don't we apply that to everything else like why can't you reform industries why can't you reform the way capitalism works why can't you reform the way democracy works why do you have to just quit it altogether and you know in the rebellion it was all about our third demand which was you know uh, demolishing the current system because it would say well it's not working we need a better democracy and we need to demolish it and get rid of it and actually again it's that kind of well why can't you reform is reform like not a thing anymore that it's just like no we don't like that we're just gonna get rid of it how do you know that there's something better on the other side like historically we don't know that historically with energy we can look at two case studies we can look at germany and we can look at france and actually another another really important point there is that people in germany pay almost twice as much more for their electricity than in france yeah. and so again that kind of comes back to people if you look at people and you care about people you kind of go well that's not really fair is it on people that have to pay a lot more you know maybe maybe that's not not great not a great thing to do and and again i've heard environmentalists say well we're willing to pay the cost because and i get that but not everybody can pay that cost you know, so it goes back to kind of putting people in the center then and, and actually caring about what they're going through and, and that they are part of nature and they don't deserve to suffer. Yeah, it's, it's wild. I've run into this a lot with, with other issues, but it's like this tension between, I think it speaks a little bit to, to what you mentioned earlier about kind of Overton windows, right? Where a lot of protest movements will use large claims to spread a, a kind of generalist message, but a quite kind of uh, catastrophist maybe, or uh 
yeah. sensationalist uh, uh, kind of mm-hmm. message. And there's, a, there's always this tension right between like uh, ideological underpinnings. So the idea of like normative beliefs of saying, okay, well, in an ideal world, this would happen. And then that often being at odds, particularly with the left, with pragmatic steps towards something, you know, like where it, it again, it goes back to like a purity politics or, or a kind of sly, uh, not, not necessarily wanting to get your hands dirty and actually do a lot of work, but like, you know, fundamentally a better capitalism is better than a worse capitalism, right? Like, <laughs> um, yeah, the, but you know, that's quite I, a controversial thing to say. <laughs> no, no, genuinely, when I say that, I feel like such a, such a shill or something, but it's like, no, it's like, okay, in, in an ideal world, I could have these conversations over here, but you know, arguably, as you mentioned in communities in the Punjab with, with your cousin, I'm very sorry to hear about their, their situation. Um, living in the same capitalist structure with them having access to decent medical care and roads is better than them not having access to decent medical care and roads, right? And so you can kind of get yourself into this odd position of where the most pure way to be is, is ultimately to be ineffectual. And actually, in, in, this, in the face of very real problems, not necessarily faced by us, who are privileged Western people who you know, talk on podcasts, that is actually a moral stance, right? It is, it is a moral stance to, to want to shut people off from incremental progress or incremental reform because of some childish uh, ideological belief that I might ultimately be sympathetic to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But just imagine, you know, we want to talk about Id- Id- idyllic futures. Just imagine if in the 70s, when France decarbonized, what if all of Europe had done it? Like we wouldn't have climate change, right? Because we were driving climate change. We were bringing up, bringing, you know, you look at the charts, all the graphs, that's when the emissions are going right up. If we had just decarbonized like France had, if there hadn't been all this anti-nuclear ideology coming from NGOs, um, exaggerated by, you know, um, popular culture, then we wouldn't have climate change or it wouldn't be anywhere near as bad as it is. And we wouldn't have millions of deaths a year from air pollution, which I just have to bring up again, because it's like, well, that's happening right now. You can add up all of the deaths from nuclear from the, 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 you know, very first disaster, and it's absolutely pales in significance, it's a few thousand deaths compared with millions from fossil fuels every year. And mm-hmm. you think it's an absolute insult to those people who have lost children and loved ones from something that is entirely preventable because we have the technology right here, right now. It's not we're waiting around the corner, we're hoping it's going to be invented. We're lucky. We have it right now. We have a solution. And then all the people you expect to be promoting that solution are like deadly against it yeah. <laughs> something's gone profoundly wrong then it, again it's very similar to vaccines isn't it yeah and it almost seems like they're just so stuck on this purest notion of, of outcomes that they're missing all the bits in between where so much damage is being done and you know at the moment i don't see that changing i think that actually i'm trying to change it but i just hear the same arguments go round and round and round and i'm just really hoping that we don't make the same mistakes and in 15 years be in exactly the same position. And you can imagine what will have happened in the global South by then, right? I wonder if we could zoom out a little bit. I mean, we've been talking a little bit about the the need for energy in the developing world. And I was wondering if there are any examples of pro-nuclear projects there. And, you know, I've been reading about some um, nuclear projects popping up in China. I'm wondering what the kind of global, you know, outside of a European and outside of a uh, North American context viewpoint is on, on, on nuclear. Well, a lot of um, countries that haven't succumbed to all the stuff we've been talking about with environmentalism here, they don't have a problem with nuclear. So Russia's <laughs> building new reactors. Japan's kind of got over its issues and they're building more and they're opening up one that they'd shut down after Fukushima. Um, and 
China's building them and, you know, they're building them very quickly. They're building them at cost. But you have you do have to bear in mind that we do still have NGOs over here, very powerful NGOs who are pressuring world governments and pressuring, you know, in other countries to try and get them to shut down and try and get them to not open their reactors because they're so afraid of this technology. Um, but yeah, and in the Middle East as well, the Middle East has got a great, um, I think it was the United Emirates that I saw, they've, they've got a great program of yeah, creating lots of jobs through lots of new nuclear power stations. They do create a lot of jobs and it, they, they're quite um, well sought out at, after jobs because they're very you know high-skilled, high-paying jobs, um, require a lot of engineers. I mean, it's a good measure of society. We have a lot of engineers and scientists. So it's it's almost as if actually we're kind of being left behind over here in, the, in yeah. this world and around the world. They're making leaps and bounds with this tech and because they don't have all the opposition, it is a lot cheaper and a lot faster than trying to do it somewhere like here where it will just take years because the government won't sign off money or because of protests, protests slow everything down. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens, you know, in the coming years. But I've seen a lot of positive news lately about all of these reactors being built, all these great plans and designs. And I actually think some of those countries, places like China, they've got a good chance of decarbonizing well before we do because they don't have any ideology standing in the way. And ultimately, it is a tech issue. And I know people will say, no, it's not. It's a capitalist issue. It's a system issue. It's a politics issue. I know that's what Greta says. But let's be honest, you know, it's, it's, a, tech, it's a tech issue, really, isn't it? Unless, unless you want to just all live with nothing, then it's a tech issue. We need to get our energy from somewhere. And th- there's, only th- there's only a few options on the table. Yeah. So, but it's quite exciting. It's exciting to see what's happening. Um, you know, we don't hear it reported about a lot here, but I, I kind of keep my finger on the pulse a little bit. And every other day there seems to be a new project. And people realizing that, hey, these are good jobs and this is clean energy and, and this is the way to go. Perhaps, perhaps it exists, but it's one thing I would, I would absolutely love is some kind of an English language newspaper that covers what's happening in the rest of the world. <laughs> it's like, I mean, like thor- thoroughly as opposed to, you know, the, the occasional, like the biggest flare. I know. Wouldn't it be um, great? You just honestly, never hear about Honestly, because yeah, I'm I'm often surprised. We're we're fortunate through our work. We get to we get to travel quite often, and you know we'll go often to you know developing world countries or uh, Asia or whatnot. And you land there, and you're like, oh wow, yeah, you can do all this. Like there's stuff happening yeah. here that feels like science fiction <laughs> when you go back to the when you go back to the quote unquote like advanced West. Um, uh, and it's actually just kind of happening. And of course, it's complicated related to the democratic situation of that particular country or whatever it might be, but. But uh, but nonetheless, uh, you know that that these can, this kind of progress is possible. I wonder for balance, um, is it possible to you know we've been strawmanning a little bit. I think um, I think justifiably, but like um, kind of broad attitudes about nuclear, where you know people see it as kind of impure or uh, artificial or whatever. Um, if we were to steal man arguments for a second, what are what are what would you say are the most kind of credible? Um, reasonable uh, counter arguments uh, towards supporting supporting nuclear. Is, is there, you know, in in supporting this, these technologies and this approach, which there seems to be a lot of scientific consensus around the, the the virtue of this approach, is there are there any areas where there are dangers of overshooting? You know, because uh, uh, coming from us, we're not super experts in this. Like I've been reading a great deal about it. It seems like the numbers are in that this is kind of an uncontroversial thing to to want to support. But are there areas where we we might want to uh, be cautious? Um, I think that the industry needs some reform. I think the industry needs to get have its ass kicked. Um, 
there's, I mean, I mean, an interesting person to look up if you're interested in this is Brett Kugelmas, because he does these incredible talks covering the issues and again, kind of saying what the solutions are. And if those get implemented, then great, we've, we've solved a lot of problems. But again, you know, they're not, they're not technological problems. They're kind of, they're people problems really, aren't they? Um, but in terms of, I mean, other, other reasons to, to be against it, I, I honestly can't think of any. Does it use up a lot of space? It doesn't, um, it doesn't harm wildlife. It doesn't, it, it has a low carbon footprint compared to other sources because it lasts so long. It creates good jobs. Um, all the things that I used to dislike about nuclear were wrong. So I can't list any of those. <laughs> I read um, one thing you might be able to speak to related to okay. its, its supply, right? That, that ultimately uranium is a, is, of finite supply. Um, now, I also read a counter argument saying that any time that we have been we have looked with intent for uranium supply, we found it. Um, and, and of course, there's kind of more. And you can also use the waste from the process to create more energy. Exactly, and asteroids and fun stuff like that. Um, but I wonder <laughs> that was the one where I was like, okay, like that seems like a that's a that's an argument. Even though in, in the case in the case of that argument, the suggestion was that we we would have centuries to find some other alternative energy source if indeed um, uranium was was finite, uh, which, yeah, which is, is, is up for debate. I, I mean, I think it's as you said that, you know, it's the same thing we've been saying about peak oil and, you know, we're, we're going to run out of coal and it just hasn't happened, has it? I always say to people as well, you know, the way to think about uranium is it exists naturally. You take it, you use, you use the energy and then you just put it back in the ground. You know, it's not, that's it. It's not that complicated. It's not, not particularly harmful. It doesn't harm anyone. It's never harmed anyone. Um, I mean, I understand, I understand people wanting more of a renewable resource, you know, something that you can just rely on all the time, but it, the technology for that doesn't exist right now. And if it, if it did, you know, I wrote, we wrote to David Attenborough about this, um, it's part of this group, group I'm part of, and just asked him what his view on nuclear was and kind of said, you know, wouldn't would you consider consider it? And he actually wrote back because he he writes back um, you know, handwritten letters to anybody who writes to him. Wow. And he wrote back to us and he said, Of course we need nuclear, but I just, you know, I think the future is some kind of um renewable resource that will just power everything. And I think that was a fair way to say it. Like in the meantime, we're still gonna need this, but maybe something better will come along. And if it does, you know, I'll be completely behind that if it does. But I don't think we can just wait for that. I don't think we can just be hopeful that that will appear. And at the same time, the nuclear tech is getting better and better. You know, I gave that example of France in the 70s. That was the 70s. We didn't even have, what, we didn't have smartphones then? I mean, come on. The tech is so much better now, so much more efficient. And there there are cases where they're reusing the spent fuels, which is what people call waste, so that, you know, it's a lot more... um, I don't know what you'd call it, not renewable, recyclable, I guess. Um, but that's not really, be, that's being pioneered, you know, in the few places where there isn't a lot of anti-nuclear sentiment. So they're kind of driving that forward and it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. A lot of people are excited about it and they're excited about fusion and, and yeah, all, all the all the good things that are coming. Actually, I don't know if you just saw, um, I think it was today or yesterday about um, a site in in England where they're going to trial some of these new reactors. Did you did you hear about oh, that? No, not at all. A large scale, um, it's a large scale nuclear fusion demonstration plant 
wow. planned in Oxford. And it's interesting, actually, because it hasn't had a lot of the anti-sentiment um, that traditional nuclear has. And I think there's something about, like, it just being cooler in people's yeah. minds. <laughs> <laughs> Even though, like, I would think, well, hang on, this is kind of new and tested tech. Like, are we sure? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's great because it's pioneering and it's hopefully going to make things even better, right? And we just, let's be honest, right? We use so much energy and even just, it's not, we just, it's not even just what we use now. We're so good at finding new ways of using more energy. So things like electric vehicles, that's a great idea, right? Except it just needs more energy. So where's that energy coming from? Um, things like cryptocurrency, you know, I'm not particularly involved in that, but I've seen all the articles about how it's using huge amounts of energy. I mean, what are we going to do about that? They can't just ban them from doing it, can we? You know, it's just, we, we all, we're very inventive and we'll keep finding ways to do it. And, you know, there's this whole theory in physics about different types of civilizations. I don't know if you've heard about this. And it's like the type zero civilization, which is where we're at which doesn't have a lot of energy, like, uh, you know, we don't have an abundance. And the idea in physics is that a type one civilization would be like an alien civilization that harnesses some kind of energy source that just enables it to have technologies that we can only dream of kind of in yeah. sci-fi. So, you know, like in physics, there's a lot of theories about time travel or whatever, but, you know, yeah. they're theories which some physicists will say, well, actually, maybe we could do that, but we don't have the technology. So the idea is that a lot of these other, if, if they exist, these other civilizations would be like type one or type two civilizations because they'll have that tech. And it always comes down to energy and the energy use. And I, I like to use that example because it's the opposite of what you hear of the negative scenarios of, you know, the nuclear disaster or whatever. It's like, this is the positive stuff that can happen. No one's in poverty. Everybody can afford cheap energy and sky's the limit with what you can create because we're energy abundant. Absolutely. Why, why wouldn't you want that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, like these physicists, they'll say other, I think Michio Kaku says it really well, which is that, you know, he always says, we don't want aliens to come visit us because if they're living these type one or type two um, lifestyles, then they would look at us and see squirrels. Like we would be squirrels to them. We would be like, to them. How, how would they treat us? You know, it's quite, it's a bit out there, but he is a, you know, he is a theoretical physicist. He knows his stuff. And I always think it's quite interesting because, you know, we get used we get used to the idea, don't we, that we're kind of the best and we're doing everything so, so great. And actually maybe we could be reaching far more, you know, reaching for far more than we are. And I don't think that's at odds with what environmentalism wants. I think it's been, it's missing. But if you, if I, if you're talking about lifting people out of poverty and like, you know, they don't have to work as much and everybody gets a decent wage and, and all of that stuff. I mean, these are essentially socialist principles really, aren't they? you know, that could happen if you had an energy abundant future. Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty clear that wealthy nations need to invest in the improvement and safety in this field. And that becomes really difficult when you don't have the customers in these countries or the kind of political subsidies required to build these large scale projects. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit like in more detail about the kind of current state of some of this, this tech. I mean, I was reading about there's kind of, you know, these like I don't want to call them mini, mini, but like maybe small, small nuclear reactors that are kind of coming on the scene or. Yeah. So, I mean, these are one, this is some of the tech that's being pioneered, isn't it? I don't, I mean, I don't follow it super closely because there isn't really a scientific consensus about it per se, because they're not, you know, they're not operative, but I know that there's a lot of money being funneled into them and they're attempting to create them. And the idea is that there would just be much smaller reactors that you could kind of have, you know, um, I mean, someone gave the example to me of you could have it as small as kind of like a boiler and it could just 
wow. power your whole house. Wow. But, but it, it's pie in the sky thinking. You know, it doesn't exist and we can't build it yet. But I know there are lots of plans. And even our government over here has, has expressed um, an interest in advanced nuclear. It's in their energy white paper. They've said we really want to fund um, advanced nuclear. And I think it's always good to fund you know, new projects. I think that's good, just so long as we don't lose sight of what we've got now, right now, that works. I know it's a bit boring and it's not as exciting, but hey, I just want to get rid of climate change. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm happy to go on record saying that. I, I mean, yeah, Hook, hooking your quantum computer up to your uh, fission boiler sounds pretty cool to me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And Dyson Sphere. I mean, come on, look, I'm a big Trekkie. I'm into all the sci-fi stuff. I love it. But, <laughs> we actually talk about solutions and like what we need to do on the ground and what the governments need to do then we've got to just pin those for a minute and look at what we what we've got to play with and mm-hmm. uh, and just do our best so i have a question um now i'm i'm probably going to botch the genesis or the the kind of chronology of this but um i've seen your name mentioned often in relation to a term eco-modernism um and through following that thread i found there's an institute called environmental progress in the states run by mm-hmm. a guy called Michael Schellenberger mm-hmm. um, that I believe you're a part of for, for a minute maybe and then are not maybe anymore that uh, this is all just bad googling so please excuse me um, <laughs> the, it was quite interesting because because initially like the term eco-modernism to me and I looked through the site I was like okay this looks really encouraging because it seems to be covering some of the same area we're talking about of like actually you know the best way out of a crisis is you know, to, to embrace the technology and the tools that we have available to us and not paint a catastrophic picture the whole time, but instead try and seduce people at least with, with the promise of abundance or the promise of a promise of something more. I wonder, you know, do you have any more context about that particular, if it is a movement, if it is a thing, and also maybe, you know, your, your feelings about it? Um, Cause I get the impression that it's something that is happening. Um, and uh, yeah. And I just want to know more about it. Yeah, so eco-modernism has been around for a little while and it was founded by, I can't remember, a group group of people, many of whom I've met. Mike was one of them. Michael Schellenberger was one of them. Um, And they wrote this manifesto, which you can still read online, which does cover some of the things that we've been talking about. But it was very badly received. And I don't you know, I wasn't following it at the time. This is all stuff I've learned since. So I don't really know why, what happened. And I think possibly it was a comms problem. But basically, they just upset everybody when they put this manifesto out, <laughs> especially environmentalists, especially the environmental movement. And there was a lot of criticizing, kind of what you said earlier about, you know, people worrying that it's just a techno fix and, and everything else will stay bad. You know, I think maybe they didn't embed the kind of social justice stuff in there and they could have done that better. Um, but I've spoken to a lot of those people like Mike and I've worked briefly with Mike and I know that those things are on their minds that they do care about those issues, but I think maybe they weren't as clear in their communications or they didn't put it in the manifesto as clear or, some, or something, something went awry. And I think it's difficult now. I mean, I don't particularly associate, uh, you know, call myself an eco-modernist as post technically I am, but um, I think it's hard now to kind of, dig back and try and get to the roots of it and I know people are trying to relaunch it as this this new thing and this great idea I think it's hard to do that once something's been demonized I mean I have enough trouble doing that with nuclear right but at least I have lots of evidence and facts behind me whereas this is just an ideology 
Um, And honestly, I kind of, I'm kind of just moving away completely from ideology. I don't think it helps. I get that people need it and it helps them, but I, in my experience, it, it, you know, it it can lead to very insular thinking and it can lead to very unscientific thinking. And I've, I've, I've really just moved away from it. Um, And so, but the story of Mike is, um, is interesting because I'd, I'd, left Extinction Rebellion. I'd been on the Andrew Neil show, had that experience. He wrote an article in Forbes about um, environmentalists making stuff up, something like that. And in uh, the picture at the top was like AOC, um, Bill McKibben, um, someone else, can't remember who, and me. <laughs> and so, so I woke up this morning, that morning and several different people were sent sent this article and I was like oh no what does it say it's some guy called Michael Schellenberg I hadn't heard of him but I messaged him I messaged him because I said look you're saying that I said things that weren't true and that's not true actually I tried very hard not to and we had this quite feisty conversation on the phone he said I'm going to phone you I said fine we had this quite feisty conversation but in the conversation he said something about environmentalists all being against techno fixes and I was like well that's not true because if you watch the Andrew Neil interview to the end um, when he asked for, he keeps pressing me for solutions. And I say at the end, look, actually, um, humankind is really good at finding solutions. We put a man on the moon. It's literally what I said on, on that show. No one ever seems to remember. <laughs> um, I said, we put a man on the moon. We created the, inter- all right, fine. You could say, well, that was a space race and people being competitive and warmongering. But okay, what about the International Space Station? 16 nations worked together to create a space station. Um, they had to develop the parts separately, manufacture them manufacture them separately in separate countries because it was so so much work and detail and money that went into them then they sent them up into space independently right using math to make sure that they'd arrive in the same space then they sent up cos- cosmonauts and astronauts who assembled it in space now it exists in space it rotates around the planet 16 times a day people go up there and live on there and do groundbreaking science i mean that is what we can achieve when we really want to, you know, there's no, there's no term for that. I don't even know that it comes under eco-modernism, but that's what I think of when I think this is actual real sci-fi stuff that we're doing right now. Like if we really want to combat climate change, we can do it. If we really want to lift people out of poverty, we can do it. Um, and so anyway, I, I had this conversation with him and he was like, Oh, okay. You're pro-nuclear. What? And he went away and then he rang me again weeks later and he said, well, would, would you go and say that in, in public? And I said, yeah, probably would. You know, I have said it to people. Um, and he said, you do know you'll get a massive backlash. And I said, actually, I've been thinking about it. And I think I probably need to. So he said, well, why don't you start a UK branch of environmental progress and see how that goes uh, for a few months? Um, and you can just do your advocacy work. You know, he didn't micromanage me, kind of left me to it. And so I got to do that, you know, as an activist over here and still talking about climate change. Um, and But then at the same time, his book came out and that his book was a bestseller and made him very well known over here in a way that he wasn't before. And there was a lot of criticism leveled at me because of things he said. And I kind of felt like, okay, maybe it's time to to step away from this and own my own space so that I don't constantly have to defend Mike or talk about his ideology and his views and his book. Um, so I left, I left there and I, and I went away and found some funding for my own project, which is what I, I'm doing now. Let's well, talk about it. Yeah. I'll, be, I'll be curious to know more about it. Well, um, so it came, kind of came about organically because I was doing the university talks and each time I do them, I'd get to the questions bit and I'd all, I'd be so ready with all the numbers and facts and figures about waste and radiation and, you know, all the things I was used to people throwing at me in environmental groups. But these, these young people and these eco societies at university didn't have any of those, um, 
issues on their mind, the main things they would ask is, what can we do? How do we do it? Uh, what are you doing? How can we help? And I was a bit like, oh, well, you know, I've given you all this information and you're now up to speed, but I don't really have anything to offer you. It's just me going around doing public speaking. So I created this group called Emergency Reactor off the back of that. It's like a fun kind of, you know, climate action group. Um, but one that talks about talks about energy, talks about energy poverty, and more importantly, energy justice. That's really important to me. It's a term you don't hear a lot of, but you know that's what we should be aiming for. I think is energy justice. It puts people right at the heart of environmentalism as well. And um, so what I'm now doing is, you know, when I give talks, I invite people to come and sign up to our mailing list, and we will be doing some actions. You know, it's difficult at the moment with. Um, with COVID not being able to do much out and about, but that's my hope is to do some actions, get people out, um, maybe get, get, you know, help people train up to become more public speakers and things like that for these groups. Because at the moment, otherwise, um, there's nothing that exists in that space. You know, you could think of, I can think of five different groups for rewilding. I could think of five different groups, if you like renewables, but for nuclear, there isn't, right? There's just industry and then this big gap. So that's why I founded it, emergencyreactor.org. It's an activist group, very grassroots, open to ideas, hoping to build a network and just trying to take that kind of follow the science bit of Extinction Rebellion forward so that it actually affects, you know, outcomes and we have decent policies made because of it. Great name too, I'd say. <laughs> Thank <laughs> just, you. Just yeah. <laughs> We we've got lots of fun phrases as well, like phase out the fossils, oh, which is a play on which is a play on old school environmentalism as well as fossil fuels. <laughs> Sounds great. You should do you should do a it. Lot, a lot of work went into the messaging. Yeah, have a look at the website, emergencyreactor.org. It's just one page. I'm still building it. I'm building a team. It's taking a lot of time. But you know, I took this idea to so this is this is interesting. So I took people always say, Who funds you? Are you funded by nuclear? Well, no, I have absolutely no links with industry. Sometimes they reach out to me and ask me to do talks and I say no. I don't work with industry. That's not why I'm doing this. I'm not interested in any of that. Um, but I re I reached out to someone who has like a climate kind of fund or foundation who's his parents, both his parents are nuclear physicists. So he totally gets it and he was he's been hoping for a long time that there would be some climate activism that cares about nuclear. So when he saw my work, he was like, oh, okay, we'll put, you know, put in a bid to this, this uh, foundation and, and maybe we can fund you to do it. So that's what I do now independently. And I'm trying to build a kind of team around that and try and work out how to make it a long-term, you know, successful venture. And I know people, people might be surprised at that and say, what, you receive money? Well, you know, we received money in Extinction Rebellion as well. There was a lot of money that went into Extinction Rebellion. So, you know, these movements do need um, a little bit of, of support behind them to be able to get posters printed and, and all of those things. So, yeah, exciting. Exciting that that's, hap that's happening now and that um, people do reach out to me all the time saying, how do we get involved? What can we do? Um, there's groups in France asking me to go and speak over there. There's a group in Nether the Netherlands. There's a group in Denmark. Lots of lots of people all over the place saying, especially, you know, it is very much in Europe because that's where all the anti-sentiment is. Um, just, yeah, really hoping to build something. And I've, you know, I've not done this before. I've been a part of many movements and I was very integral to Extinction Rebellion, but I didn't create it. So I'm still figuring out exactly what on earth I'm doing, but certainly we need a presence and we need to do as much outreach as we can in the most effective way possible so that 
you know, we have good outcomes. I assume by this foundation and what you've chosen to spend your energy on that your answer to those students when they ask what they can do is potentially get involved in this nuclear conversation. Is yeah, that- it is now. It is now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when I was doing the talks before the summer break, I didn't have anything to offer them. So I've created it now. And then when I go back in September, once they open up again and I do talks again, um, I'll be able to to offer them, you know, more. And also, and not just here, like, you know, not just in Britain, but everywhere where it's needed, really. Because I think it's also, people are very tribal. People are naturally very tribal. And I think it's a very sad thing if if you care about the environment, you care about these issues, and you don't have anywhere that you belong. Yeah. Um, and I felt that right when I started talking about nuclear and I kind of got, I didn't get kicked out of these groups. You know, I le- I left a lot of them, a lot of these spaces, but I can imagine it's a very heart wrenching thing to do. You know, you kind of, you, you need your tribe and your community and to not just feel like you're some alien with, with alien beliefs. And, and I don't think someone who has an evidence based view should ever be made to feel like that. You know, I think we should be proud that we advocate for science. Um, and that, you know, that is the core, I think, of what eco-modernism was meant to do. But for whatever reason, it's it's never really taken off. Um, I don't know what that is. I was watching uh, Lee Phillips, who I mentioned earlier. It was in some like Jacobin feed. Um, and he was talking about how, I might botch the statistic, but it was something along the lines of, you know, 90% of scientists agree that anthropogenic uh, climate change is, is a reality. Um, but also 90% of uh, systems, what, 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 I'm struggling to find the, the right term, energy systems scientists, something along those lines, um, advocate for, for, for nuclear. Um, it seems like there, there is like a clear path to, to really shift the narrative on this stuff because. Well, yeah. So, yeah. So this goes back to the IPCC report. It's all in there because that same report is where we got our 97% consensus on climate change. Like this is real. This is happening because of humans. The same report has a section on energy and it's got nuclear in there significantly. Like it needs to be built significantly all around the world. And uh, that's the bit people then ignore. But it's the same scientists crunching the same data. You know, it's the same consensus. There's no there's no room to argue that really. Um, and that's something that, yeah, you know, I'm glad to hear Lee. I think Lee's great, by the way. Um, but I'm glad to see him him talking about that because it's something people don't realize. And it's very easy to go away and check yourself. If you look in the IPCC report in the um, energy section by Working Group 3, it has four decarbonization pathways. All of the decarbonization pathways have a huge amount of nuclear, huge amount. It has renewables too, but you wouldn't believe how much. I mean, that's why I went, I saw that and went, whoa, I need to advocate for this because it's, we're nowhere near we're no, I mean, we're nowhere near on that scale. I mean, in Britain, we're shutting down most of our old reactors. We're not building anything, really. Um, and the amount we need to build to get our emissions down is significant. And it will take time, so we need to do it as soon as possible. So it's kind of why I've staked my claim in this area. You know, I won't do it forever, but um, I hope to have be able to make some difference now. Well, I'm really glad you are. Um, yeah, it's and it's it's shocking how counterintuitive it is because of I think of that distorted narrative that we've covered quite quite a lot here. I'm I'm really glad to hear of, of the work you're doing. I wonder, you know, we, we should wrap up soon because uh, you have a life. <laughs> um, <laughs> is is there anything that is there anything that we we're going to post uh, information about uh, about emergency reactor and other stuff that you've written and done? Is there is there anything else we might have missed? That you, that you want to call out? Um, well, I think we've pretty much covered everything. And 
I would just ask people to come and visit emergencyreactor.org and sign up to the mailing list because when we do start doing events and things, we will be sending out um, mailings to people so that you can get involved. And that's the first step, I think, towards advocacy. And if, you know, get in touch with me if there's anything that I can do to help, then that, you know, that's part of my job. That's what I'm trying to do, um, help people find their voice in these spaces. And it's not just nuclear, you know, it's, it's any... It's any scientific, any scientific solution to anything that is is controversial, which seems to be everything nowadays. Frankly, I, I'm here. I've been there. I've I've fought the anti-vaxxers. I've been shouted at by the anti-nukers. I've got a lot of experience. I've got a master's <laughs> in certification. Just reach out to me because that community is really important, and I think those people really need support. And you know, if we can build some kind of positive movement out of this, then good. I've done something really useful with my life. I'll be happy. <laughs> I, th- I think I think you could you could yeah you can feel comfortable about that. Um, we have one question that we ask everybody at the end, um, and it's our final question. Um, what does interdependence mean to you? Interdependence. Um, I guess it goes back to what we were saying about individualism, and that actually everybody just doing their little bit isn't enough, because that's just not how the world works. It's not how people work. We're all dependent on each other. If, if, you know, if the boat sinks, we're all in it. So um, we should do everything we can to keep it afloat. Awesome. Agree. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us and for letting us learn a little bit more about nuclear. I think we'll probably continue to look into it. And um, yeah, it's it's exciting to hear that um, there's some kind of like solution oriented um, people working on these projects not solutionism not oh, to yeah. be confused with solutionism it's another word another word that needs some kind of like a, a makeover it's like yeah solving problems isn't bad guys <laughs> um, yeah absolutely well, thank you very much for having me on no please and we'd love to have you back uh, in future you know anytime there's something obviously launching a new a new organization in covid is probably quite a challenge and so i'd imagine there's probably in a year's time or so uh, there'll be a lot of news to share so we'd love to have you back brilliant yeah i'd love to come back thanks so much awesome well have a good day bye bye, bye. bye.